Good morning. Good morning. Um, what a joy it is to turn to the Word of God, His, His promises, and His comforts, in, especially in times like these. Today we'll be continuing in the Beatitudes. We'll be turning to Matthew chapter 5 and looking at verse 5. If you have a Bible with you, turn there. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under the seat in front of you. Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. This is the word of God. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Pastor Sam. Let's begin with a word of prayer, church. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for your provision and your kindness towards us. And the fact, God, that you see everything and there is not a single sparrow, God, that falls to the ground dead that you do not notice. And all the birds, God, that fly, though they neither gather into barns or sow, God, you take care of them and how much more of value are we than they so, Father, we look to you always, each and every day, to give us our daily bread and to feed us and provide for us. And I ask, God, that right now as we come to you to feast on your word, O oh God, that your word would give us strength to not just survive, God, this life, but to thrive and to live as faithful people, O oh God, who shine like lights in a world that is full of crooked and twistedness. Father, help us, God, to be beacons of hope, reflecting the great light of the world, Jesus Christ, to a world that is in pain, full of fear, anxiety, O oh Lord, and does not know where to go. Father, all the pundits and the gurus and the best-selling authors of our day and age, O oh God, their wisdom, God, will one day fade away and crumble into dust. For the word of God remains forever. The grass withers, the flower falls, but your word, O oh Lord, remains forever. So, Father, I pray, God, that you would help us right now to learn from your word, to take comfort and strength and guidance from our lives of how we are to live as believers. Help us as your people, O oh God, to love you, to fear you, and to obey. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen. Our text for today that was just read is the third beatitude as we continue on in our series in the Sermon on the Mount here, and it has to do with the meek who will inherit the earth. Now, I think the sermon's actually quite timely for today because there's a number of things I think that will address our current situation. And the question for us, of course, is what does Jesus mean by this? You know, the word meek that's used here, I'm quite aware, is very rarely used in our culture. Very few people will go up to another person or even and call them meek or describe themselves actually as being meek. I was looking through a list of over 200 positive words that you can choose to use to describe yourself when you go for a job application. And it includes things like strategic, precise, analytical, productive, problem solver. Those are all the words that people like to use. When you're thinking about thought patterns or character, they'll say things like patient, considerate, easygoing, thoughtful, and so on. 
There's not a single list that I have read as I've gone through the amendment that has the word meek in there to describe yourself as a positive quality. In fact, of our culture, we think of it largely as negative. Now, if you were to flip open the Merriam-Webster dictionary and read the definitions that are there, you would get a few things like this. Number one, enduring injury with patience without resentment. Two, deficient in spirit and courage. Three, not violent or strong. In other words, though uh, there is one positive definition, largely in the way that it appears in the dictionary and also in our culture, it's just negative. Now, the question for us, though, of course, is who is Jesus talking about when he refers to the meek? Because it seems like it's positive here. And the question we ask is, is Jesus saying that it is those, according to the dictionary, who are not courageous, not brave, deficient in their fortitude, physically weak, or individuals who are swayed by everyone else's opinion in this world and don't have an opinion truly of their own that will inherit the kingdom of God? To be honest with that, I would say I think that that would sound rather preposterous and quite ridiculous. And in fact, if that was what was being said, I think it's actually quite anti-Christian as well. No, I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is not saying, blessed are the cowardly and the unprincipled, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or it's okay if you deny me before my father because I'll take care of you in the end. Jesus said the exact opposite. You know, Nietzsche was the great German philosopher who thought a lot about these things, especially about Christianity. And one of the concepts he disliked in Christianity was the concept of meekness. Not because he felt that, you know, uh, uh, pat, you know, nonviolence or not striking back was immoral, but rather because he saw it as a fraudulent mask that many people chose to wear to actually cover up their own cowardice or their, uh, or their unwillingness to act when things were called for. In other words, what he was saying is that some people pretend that their softness or their unwillingness to do something that is hard is meekness or harmlessness, but in actuality, or morality they would call, but in actually it's just their, their unwillingness to actually be brave when circumstances call for them to be brave. So all this to say is, look, no one, God included in our world, admires individuals who are cowardly or fail to act when they should act. No one uh, values that. Nobody values people who bend their principles to protect their own interest. I think it's actually quite funny when you look at North American culture, for instance, because we are a culture that all throughout school and in the way that we speak to each other advocates a relative type of morality. In other words, what we say to people is what's true for you may not be true for me. What's right for you may not be right for me. So you live this way. And the crazy thing is that the moment that kids graduate from university and then they go out to start their careers, let's say on Wall Street, and then they live this relative morality with other people's uh, money in their hedge funds and the way that they sort of uh, uh, go about their business, all, all of a sudden everybody becomes absolute moralist. And they say, you can't do that. That's fraudulent activity. How dare you do that? We have standards here. It, it's bizarre. Like if you think about it, nobody actually truly lives by this idea of relative morality. And we are so willing to enforce it that we will put people in jail if they dare to do it with our possessions. Now, here's the point. All this to say is that Jesus is not saying that the cowardly or the unprincipled will inherit the earth. And if that's true, the question is, what then is he saying? 
And for that, I think we need to redefine, according to the Bible, what the Bible means about weakness and not go with our culture's definition about meekness. Okay. So what is meekness? Number one, if you're outlining here, let me, let me look at this first. We're going to cover the Psalms and then we're going to cover the Old Testament. Meekness in Psalm 37. So if we want to understand how God defines meek, let's flip to Psalm 37. I'll put some verses up here on this, on the screen. Jesus' words, if you didn't know here in the Sermon on the Mount, actually come virtually word for word from Psalm 37 verse 11, which reads like this. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Now, this is a psalm that is speaking about the hope that God's saints have, who are also called the blameless or the meek or the righteous, one of these other words. And this psalm basically says that there's at least three things that characterize God's faithful or the meek. Number one is that you can see from this psalm that the meek actually delight in and trust in the Lord. So if you look at verses three to four here on the screen, it says this, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. So I understand that in our culture, everyone sees the word meek as negative. People who are spineless and forced to do whatever other people tell them to do. And so we associate meekness with things like unfulfillment, despondency, and despair. But it's very strange. When you look at the Bible's account of what it associates the meek and the righteous with, it actually associates them with delight and actually trust in the Lord. Very, very different. Second thing, for example, from this passage, the meek have peace from the Lord. Read verses 7 to 9. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath, Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Now, if you hear that, you can hear what's being asked of the people of God in times of circumstance and trial. It's saying here, be still, wait, wait for the Lord. Again, there's no hint in this scripture of anxiety or timidity or negative things, but rather just peace and patience. Now, you have to fight for it. You need to be active in it, but still, that's what's asked for. So yes, for example, even if your boss cheats you at work or someone chooses to insult you and made un make unfounded accusations against you, the question is, what is the solution? It's not pretend that a problem doesn't exist, but rather the psalmist says here, go to the Lord. Take your worries, take your concerns, all these things that bother you, your situation with the evildoer, and go to the Lord. The, th the third thing that follows just right from the same passage is that why can you do that? Is because it says in here really that the meek are also defended by the Lord, right? This is related to um, trusting and waiting for the Lord. Why is it that God's people don't need to be ultimately be concerned about taking revenge on someone else or avenging themselves when things are done wrong to them? Now, of course, we have courts. Yes, justice does need to be done, but ultimately speaking, there are many people who get away from the courts and get away from things or do things to you which they'll never be convicted of. The question is, where will justice come from? Do you need to become like a vigilante and take it into your own hands? What the psalmist says here is no, Trust that to the Lord, because ultimately you have a God in heaven who sees all things, knows all things, will enact perfect justice, and he will fight for you at the end of the day. God, he says in this passage, will ultimately cut off the wicked and all their plans to gain the world. 
by treating you poorly or mistreating you or stealing from you will come to nothing at the end of the day. Why? Because God is going to look at the meek and say, I'm going to give you the earth to those who wait for him. And it isn't just there, okay? This, this psalm is really specific, but it isn't just there in the Old Testament. Through other passages in the Old Testament, we see the same thing about God's favor towards those who are meek and trust in him. For example, Psalm 149, verse 4, tells us that God saves the meek and he delivers them. Psalm 147, verse 6, God actually guides the meek so that they know where to go. Joel 3, verse 11, God empowers the meek so that they can be like a warrior, right? So in summary, if I were to look at just the Old Testament alone of what it has to say about meekness, it's not negative. Now, certainly the meek and the poor and those who are faithful and walk with God are often disadvantaged and in the situation in which they do need God to rescue them, either from economic problems or from oppression and so on. That's quite common, actually, for God's followers. But that is not what is intrinsically a part of the word meekness. So if I were to say what biblical meekness is not, Biblical meekness is not about groveling, being a doormat, or a people pleaser, or a spineless individual who has no opinions of your own. Rather, meekness, what it is, can only, as we see from the scriptures, be defined in relationship to God. Okay? So biblical meekness has to do everything to do with God. And I would say the New Testament also further articulates for us what meekness actually is, and what it looks like, and and in the life of a believer. So if you look, for example, at Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 to 23, we read this famous passage, right? The fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, right? Against such things, there is no law. Now, most of us are very familiar with this passage, but one thing in our English translations, we use, we use the word gentleness because meekness, like I've said, I think doesn't quite come across right in our culture. The word gentleness here in the fruit of the Spirit is actually the same word that's translated in the Sermon on the Mount as meekness. Now, I don't know if you've ever noticed this when you were studying the fruit of the Spirit, but it's fruit singular and not fruits plural. And this is really important. Because we as Christians cannot say, for example, I grow in love and joy, but when it comes to patience, kindness, and all these things, I don't have those fruits. See, the scriptures don't give us that option. It doesn't allow a Christian to say, I only grow certain kinds of fruits, and the other kinds I just don't have. No, that's not true whatsoever. It's actually one kind of fruit instead. Of course, as Christians, we develop this one kind of fruit which encompasses all these things in different ways, like at a different levels. Some of us will grow more, especially if you've been walking with the Lord more, in patience and kindness and love, and you'll look very different from a baby Christian. And even with your spouse who is in the same house as you, the two of you, because of your personalities or the way that God grows at you, might grow in these areas slightly differently. But this is not to say that any Christian can say, I don't have to have meekness because it's not my gift. It's all part of one fruit, and you will grow in this holistically. You know, I was reading about apples this week, and apparently all apples have things like a common stem. They have a core. They have this fleshy pulp in the middle that we like eating. An apple has skin. I, just out of curiosity, I looked at it. I said, is there such thing as a skinless apple? And I Googled it. And Google says that there's no such thing as a skinless apple, and a skinless apple is a dead apple that you don't want to eat. And I thought about it, and I was like, that's exactly the same as when it comes to Christians. There is no such thing as a meekless Christian, just like there is such a thing as a skinless apple. In fact, 
fact, if you say there's a Christian who lacks love or meekness or does not grow in these things or thinks they're exempt from it, I would say, you're just like the apple. The skinless apple is dead. And so a Christian who professes to be one but does not exhibit these things could very well be a dead one as well. It's a serious thing. But what it does tell us about this is if this belongs to one of the, it belongs to the fruit of the Spirit, it's very important for us to understand if it's a fruit of the Spirit, it means that it's not a human thing, but it's a God-given quality. Now, I'm not saying that some people aren't patient, naturally speaking, or some people are more soft-spoken than others, but those are simply human characteristics. Okay? This is about an inequality that comes from a relationship with God and affects the way you then live for God. Okay? So, Christians cannot say things like, I'm just brash, I was born that way, I have a rhinoceros skin because of how I grew up. You can't say that. If you say that, I would say, don't you read in the scriptures that you were born again? And because you were born again, you will have new desires and new affections. Yes, it will take some time for that to grow, but you will live differently because you are no longer solely defined by your first birth, but by your new birth. This is why I think that Paul can tell us things like this in Colossians 3.12. Put on then as God's chosen one, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. The word there is really to not just put on, but it's to clothe yourself. So he's saying to Christians, all of you guys, put on, wear every single day the robe of meekness. You know, you read in the New Testament, meekness is actually integral to being not just a Christian, but to being a Christian leader or a Christian who helps another Christian. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, it says, If anybody is caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of what? Gentleness or meekness. Same word that's used there. Talking about the Corinthians, Paul says when he comes to them, he says, Do you want me to come with a rod and discipline you? Or would you not rather that I come in a spirit of meekness? The way that Christian leaders are to treat others is to be in a spirit of meekness as well. The book of James also tells us how to receive God's word, the implanted word, with, he says, meekness in your heart. And that those who are wise in chapter 3 actually show their wisdom in meekness by the things that they do. 1 Peter 3.15, same thing, talks about always being ready to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason of the hope that's in you. And we love talking about these things in apologetics, saying, yes, you need to be able to defend your Christian faith. Do you know what the second part of that verse says? The second half of that verse says that it's not just about defending your faith, but the way that you defend your faith is also equally important. Doing so with respect Doing so with meekness, so that when they revile your good conduct, they may be put to shame. It is so important that it appears all throughout the New Testament for us as Christians. So the question you might be asking is like, okay, so, so it's important, it's in the Old Testament, it's in the New Testament as well. Our culture doesn't understand what it is. What exactly is meekness according to the Bible? And I would say it's this, okay. Meekness is a God-given virtue, a gift, that combines patience, gentleness, long-suffering, and trust in God. And meekness bears with injuries, is willing to forgive others, and it compensates evil with good, and it would rather suffer evil, evil treatment from others than repay others and take revenge. Okay? So biblical meekness is not human act inactivity due to a fear of man. 
That's the way that the world defines meekness. Biblical meekness is rather a trust in divine activity due to confidence in who God is. Completely the opposite, okay? See, the world that we live in thinks in terms of assertion, dominance, getting ahead in life and power. And everybody wants to rule because if you don't, somebody else is going to rule over you. So you got to take matters into your own hands. And in many cases, the world kind of uh, looks to the other side saying, you can cut corners, step on a few toes to get there, just don't kill anybody unless you can actually get away with it, like you're a dictator or so on. The world is willing to make, to bend and say, well, you've got to do what you've got to do, right? To take care of yourself, take care of your family. Because at the end of the day, what the world believes is the gospel of Charles Darwin. The gospel of Charles Darwin says, the strongest and fittest shall inherit the earth. And if you don't fit in that category, you don't have a chance whatsoever. See, the Bible's picture is the complete opposite of this. You know, I love what David Murray wrote in his article entitled, Meekness is not meanness. This is what he says. Meekness is the opposite of meanness. It's putting others first, second, and third, and making yourself last. It's putting God above everyone. Else, everyone. But if I do that, you think, everyone else will get everything and I'll be left with nothing. Well, yes, it might mean we lose out a bit in this sinful, temporary world, but Jesus' promise means that we will inherit the perfect and eternal world. That's where faith comes in. Everything and everyone tells us, if you want anything in this world, you've got to fight for it. But Jesus says, if you want the world, you have to give it up. Indeed, if you do live for this world, you will ultimately lose everything. I think he's nailed it, actually, with this this explanation. The world is characterized by meanness, but the Christian is characterized by meekness. You know, honestly, I think that the coronavirus stuff that's going around the news right now actually illustrates this perfectly. You know, I heard from friends yesterday that I'd contacted who work at Microsoft and Facebook in Seattle that many of them are staying at home and they're not actually going to the workplace. And I asked them, uh, what's the Costco situation like there right now? And they said, oh yeah, Costco was cleaned out a week ago. As well, I said, funny that. It's the exact same thing that's here. If you've ever tried to go and see the grocery stores. I tried to buy toilet paper and the whole section was empty at the nearby Save-On Foods. And I thought it was really quite, quite ridiculous if you think about it. Uh, why toilet paper of all things? You know, I thought about that for a while and then, you know, I tried to do some reading on it and I thought actually it, it communicates something particularly profound about our society and where we are as North Americans. Dr. Rohan Miller at the University of Sydney has actually written an explanation about this phenomenon. He said, we are not used to shortages and scarcity. I think people want to make sure that they have some comforts in their lives if they're going to be shacked up with their family for a long time. Toilet paper doesn't really matter. It's just so far down on the survival list compared to other things like food and water. But it's just something that people cling to as a minimum standard. You know, I read this week about people stealing toilet paper rolls from public ba bathrooms here. And in one case in Australia, somebody pulled out a knife in a store over a dispute over toilet paper. See, do you know what this shows actually about the culture in which we live in? It's horrifying if you think about it. It's actually, it shows that deep down inside, we aren't just me first when it comes to the necessities of life, but even to luxuries as well. See, we aren't just terrified of dying. 
But what the coronavirus shows us is that we're actually terrified of inconvenience. We are terrified that the comforts that we enjoy on this world and cling to so closely will be taken away from us and we will do anything we can to make sure that we can preserve ourselves even if it means somebody else has to go without those comforts as well. Now, the coronavirus, um, you know, shows, I think, that we're willing to fight, insult others, and to do whatever we can to make sure that we're comfortable. And I don't want to trivialize it here to say that it's completely harmless, but can you imagine what would happen to our society if something far worse, like Ebola or the Black Plague, which killed one out of three Europeans, some 25 million people in the late 1340s, can you imagine if something like that struck BC? You think that toilet paper is a problem right now. We would have way bigger problems in society. See, meanness says you need to run and take care of yourself and your family. But meekness says stay, exercise wisdom, but take care of others out of reverence for your God. See, and when we're mistreated, deprived of the comforts and necessities of life, the exhortation in the scriptures given to us is to trust in the Lord and to wait for him because this is what the meek have always done, putting their hope in God. You know, I read about the Chinese church in Wuhan, which was at the center of the coronavirus epidemic, uh, the center of this outbreak. And though they're persecuted by the government, those Christians have every reason to run underground and to hide from society. But you know what they're doing, actually? It says that the Christians are actually out in the streets. And instead of hoarding the face mask, the Christians are acquiring what they can and they are giving away anything that they don't have, uh, giving them away out of love for Christ to people who are in need. You know, last month, the World Magazine published an article about the Chinese church in Wuhan and how a Chinese lady there who was not a believer was actually sick with the coronavirus. And because of that, her family was ostracized and placed under quarantine. The church actually took them on and decided to bring them food and to serve this family. And Pastor Peng actually led her to Christ five days before she died. Because of the virus, they actually held a memorial service through video conferencing for about a hundred of her friends and family members, and he preached on Psalm 80, explaining to all of these unbelieving relatives that calamity and disaster in life is meant to lead people towards God and deliverance and salvation from him. Pastor Peng said this, if the sudden death of Mr. Shui, Mrs. Shui can lead you to repent before God, then this day will be the day your mother rests in the Lord and the day your whole family will be saved. See, the point is this, in the midst of fear and darkness, the gospel actually shines brighter and draws people to the image of God. It's always been this way. See, when the plague was rampant in Rome, you know, virus, this is not the first rodeo when it comes to virus here. When the plague was rampant in Rome and early Christians had to figure out what to do, the Christians ran towards the sick and the dying knowing that they could very well die themselves while the rest of the world ran away. Now, I'm not saying that we as a church should be foolish in the way that we treat epidemics or viruses here. You've just heard Peter speaking about how we will take precautions, we will sanitize our hands, we will do things. But my point is this. We, although we are willing and will necessarily take action to be active about our part in preventing spread from the disease, the point is we are never permitted as Christians to give up the sharing of the gospel or doing good to other people simply because we are afraid of our own well-being. This is something that people in persecuted countries think about all the time. 
It's not just a virus, but they have to think about, if I share the gospel, they might not kill me. My wife might become a widow. I might lose my kids. I might be thrown in jail. They might even torture me to find the whereabouts of other people or Christians and kill them. Do I want that on my conscience? See, we all have these decisions to make. And what Jesus is teaching us and what the Bible teaches us about this is that our obligation first and foremost always is to our Lord Jesus Christ and then we are to love other people in his name. In fact, that when other people are afraid and behaving their very worst is when we as meek Christians who depend on God, trust in him and will not avenge ourselves but give to other people so that they might have, it's then that the meekness and the brightness of the gospel of Jesus Christ shines. This is a huge opportunity for us as Christians, how we respond to a world that's afraid to show them that we have a hope that goes forward into eternity and that we, unlike other people, can have confidence, not because we are brave in ourselves, but because we have a God who fights for us. That's our hope. And see, and whether you're yelled at or you're insulted or people racially profile you and think because you're Asian and you cough that you have the coronavirus and mistreat you. It doesn't matter, brothers and sisters here. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter even if you're cheated at work and your boss gets away with it, or somebody steals the toilet paper out of your cart, the one packet that you needed in order to be able to just go to the bathroom. Meekness is about having dignity, poise, a level head, a Christ-honoring disposition, even when you are ill-treated. You know, friends, let me ask you, when you are running through tough times in life, how do you actually react? How you react actually shows whether you subscribe to the doctrine of meanness or you subscribe to the biblical doctrine of meekness. You know, when people insult you and they're difficult with you, is your tongue, like James 3 says, a fire and a world of unrighteousness? And that when you lash back, what happens is you start a forest fire that burns everything down around you, whether it's your kids, your family, your work colleagues. What do you do actually with your mouth? Do you bless your God and Father with that tongue, as James says, and curse people who are made in the likeness of God with that very same tongue? Do you blame everyone else for your troubles and complain about your life, your family, your marriage, your work situation, whatever it is? Is your only ability, the ability to see the logs in other people's eyes, but not the specks in other people's eyes, but not notice the log in your own eye? It's crazy. I remember listening to a guy who felt that his spiritual gift was to discern the problems in other people's lives. I thought, wow, that's really interesting. It's strange you can't see the big problems in your own life. You know, how do you respond to trial and difficulty? When people come at you, do you respond with trash talk or do you respond to them with tears? Sir Thomas Brown said that meekness takes injuries like pills, not chewing, but swallowing them down. In other words, the meek are the ones who overlook offenses and do not respond in kind. You know, I had to learn a lot about this being in church ministry because there are always people who are regularly unhappy with me. You know, some people, though, are quite courteous in the church and they'll say, well, Pastor Sam, I, I hope that you didn't take offense to something that I did. Then they'll explain with this thing. And after I listen to them, I now have the habit, I just tell them now, I said, look, the way that it's going to be in this church is this, uh, that I've taken it for myself, is if you, if you are planning to offend me, please inform me in advance. 
because I will not assume that what you are doing is intentionally meant to bring harm to me or to the church, and I will give you the benefit of the doubt. Okay? I'm going to assume the best of you as a brother and sister in Christ, and there is a deficiency. It's probably in my lack of knowledge of what you are doing, because I am not God. So I just ask you, if you're going to do that, just inform me in advance. See, my point is this. Meekness is not mindlessness or unthinkingness. It's careful. It's measured out. It's thoughtful. It's important to understand that. But what we really need to understand is meekness is not weakness, the way that the world thinks that it is. You know, Jesus himself, said of himself, right? Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, he says, Take my yoke upon you, learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. That word there, gentle, is the same, it's meek as well, right? It's meekness. Now, of all people, Jesus is not weak. He's the king of the universe, and we know he has unparalleled power. So it cannot mean that meekness necessarily means weakness. I mean, he made a whip in the temple, chased people out of it. Jesus, the messianic king, rode into Jerusalem, not on a war horse, but on a donkey in humility and meekness. Why? Because it was only in meekness, not repaying evil for evil, but giving good for evil, that he could save a group of people like us, who were his enemies, giving us good that we do not deserve through his meekness and kindness. You know, if Jesus had rode in on a war horse to conquer his enemies, all of us would be dead, and we would have no gospel here, and we would be lost forever. You know, when it comes to weakness, actually I would say that meekness has nothing to do with weakness. In fact, from the example of Jesus, what we see here is that his meekness demands the exercise, his self-control over his power. You know, the world says you need to assert control. Meekness, biblical meekness says, no, you need to actually have self-control in God, restraining your power and not just liberally using it. See, it takes a strong individual to fight, but it actually takes an even stronger person to rein in their own passions and to not fight in many cases, to not repay people when we are insulted and angry. Proverbs 16, verse 32 says this, Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit is better than the one who takes a city. That's God's opinion of what it means to have restraint. See, meekness refuses to use one's own strength for one's own good to the detriment of others around us. So, meekness, if I would say things, if anything, it's both a God thing and it's also a good thing. Now, okay, so now we know what meekness is. We know that it's good. We know it's from God. The question is, what are the blessings of meekness? What, what comes as a result of that? And I would just like to say three things that come from the scripture. What is it like for those of us who practice meekness and walk with the Lord? Number one, you're outlining here, under the blessings of meekness, the meek actually possess godly wisdom. Okay? Proverbs 17 verse 10 says, A rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. In other words, a person who is wise, who is meek, who is godly, these are individuals who are quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. They actually think, unlike the people who charge ahead, assuming the worst and destroying others with their tongue. These are the wise and meek people in this world, and this kind of stuff goes hand in hand together. If you are meek, if you do not repay other people evil for evil, if you stop and actually you listen to people, you will hear what they are saying, and you will be able to understand how God is speaking to you about what you are to do in circumstances, 
and to be able to minister to actually people. This is what James says in verses, chapter 3, verses 13, 17, 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his good works in the weakness of wisdom. The wisdom from above is first pure and peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. 18, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Again, all this to say is that the gentle or the meek that are here is if you're wise, what you will show is that it's in the meek way that you do your good works. It will be a benefit to other people. You know, the second thing that comes from this verse is that you can clearly see is that the meek actually will reap a harvest of righteousness. Now, what does that mean? Okay, it comes straight from verse 18 in our text here, which says that basically the wisdom of God is like you being a prosperous farmer, sowing seeds in the world, and you're going to raise a crop, a crop of peace and righteousness, of good works that grows up in the lives of people in this world. You will cause this world to flourish the same way that a farmer causes the ground to flourish with crops that will be beneficial. You know, I remember the first company that I worked at, I was a full engineer and I worked at $8 an hour for a boss who was particularly hard. I never saw him smile. And he often made derogatory comments towards his employees. But I remember because I felt so confident that God had given me this job and asked me to take it, even though it was eight bucks an hour, I felt very purposeful about being there. I remember at the end of my time, as the Lord actually moved me to someone else, when I was getting ready to go, a colleague spoke to me and he said to me, Sam, he says, I'm trapped here because of my language skills. But one thing is that other people, all eight other people have quit actually before you. He says, but you're so different in the way that you live. Why? Why are you different? And I took that opportunity. I'm like, this is what I've been waiting for all these months. You know, just, just to be able to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, you know, with this individual. I was so delighted that God allowed me to have that opportunity, though I couldn't see it all those months leading up to that. You know, to bring the gospel to a coworker who sees. You know, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25, we, we learn just how important that meekness is, not repaying evil for evil, being able to bear up under insults because of confidence in God. It says there that the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, correcting his opponents with meekness or gentleness so that God might grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. In fact, for Christian leaders and for us as Christians, our meekness and our refusal to repay evil for evil is oftentimes what can lead people to saving knowledge of God. That's how significant it is. You know, Thomas Watson said this, to render evil for evil is brutish. To render evil for good is devilish. And to render good for evil is Christian. See, nobody is attracted to what is brutish or devilish. But people are absolutely astounded by those who repay evil with good. And they are attracted to them. You know, this is what, this is what God calls us to do. Third thing here. The meek as in Matthew here, will receive a permanent and eternal inheritance. You know, this is God's promise to us forever. You know, when I was a college student, I uh, was wrestling with how I could serve the homeless and the poor. And I remember taking a, a homeless guy off the streets to uh, care for him. And I fed him. Uh, I, I gave him money as well. I brought him to my dorm and I got weird looks from other people. I'm like, you don't really belong here. I'm like, I know he's with me. Uh, it was such a strange thing. I remember spending time with this guy. And um, one day, I remember as I was feeding him and packing his food, I had gone to inquire at nearby churches about 
uh, help for him, and I found out actually that he had lied to me, and he actually had had a practice of visiting all these churches, fleecing them for money and moving on to the next one. I was pretty heartbroken actually by that because I felt that I had come to to, to love him and to trust him and that he had built up this uh, false persona for me. And after praying and seeking the Lord, um, I decided I, I would meet with him and talk to him. And on that last day, um, I turned the tables on him and I actually confronted him with the lies after he had explained, like, oh, yeah, 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 I've done this, I've done this, this and that. And I told him, no, you lied to me. And I have information from these churches and these places of where you've actually been. And I asked him, why? Why'd you do this? Now, a part of me actually wanted to, to just strike him, you know what I mean, and to take back everything that was mine because you feel, you feel taken advantage of. You feel terrible. It's not fun actually being lied to and taken advantage of. But another part of me, I remember the Lord just speaking and said, Sam, he's no different from you. You are just as lost. You were. So I grabbed him, and uh, I'll call him Steve, whatever, and I just said, Steve, um, look at me. I want you to look at me. It was, it was twilight. I couldn't really see each other very well. I said, you've cheated me. You've lied to me. In fact, you've even deprived your sick wife of the things that I've given to you by spending on whatever else that you're doing. But I want you to know that what you've done is terrible. You've not only lied to churches, you've lied to me, and you've taken money from a poor student and taken advantage of people in your life. But worst of all, all these things, it pales in comparison to what you've done before God. You've lied before God, and you live in rebellion against Him, and that actually is your biggest problem. I told him, I said, I want you to know, actually, that I'm not angry with you, though I'm hurt by you, and that I actually still love you, and that God loves you. And even right now, he is showing you mercy in you not getting what you deserve because you continue to live and you continue to breathe. I'm asking you, would you stop this and turn your life over to Jesus Christ who continues to call out to you, even though you have cheated his church and people around him, he calls to you in mercy right now. Would you not give your life to him? I remember his expression on his face. He turned from fear, wondering if I was going to like hurt him or do something, to just sorrow, and he cried. And I remember he practically fell over, and I grabbed him, and I just held him, and I hugged him and prayed for him. And I told him, I said, I'm going to give you time to think on this. You have my number to call. You keep the money that I've given you. You keep the containers. You keep everything that I've given you, because I want you to understand this is a gracious gift from me. But the greater gift that's offered to you is the gift of a Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is willing to wipe your record clean right now if you would turn to him in salvation. I paid for his bus ticket, and then I sent him off afterwards. You know, sometimes I hear later, years down the road, of what happens to people, you know, that I minister to. Uh, and some are great stories, other are, are, are terrible stories. In this case, I actually don't know. But I trust that the main thing for me was to be humble before the Lord and to meekly not accept the, my prerogative or my desire to repay evil for evil. And I trust that the Lord who sees all things in heaven and on earth will one day not only do good for me, but I trust even for this man who uh, was shown mercy in that day. You know, I uh, wrestled with that and struggled in my own soul about whether I could forgive him. And I realized if I couldn't forgive him, I was no better than that servant who owed a debt uh, of 10,000 talents to his master and was forgiven, and yet would go out and strangle another servant for 100 denarii. See, Christians, on us, it's incumbent on us to forgive because it shows that we understand what has been done for us. But you know, at the same time, I want to say that for me, I took great comfort in this promise, actually, that the meek shall inherit the earth. And that everything that we see here, one day will be made right. You know, uh, since moving to the North Shore, 
Um, actually, even before this as well, I would say I actually really, really like Grouse Mountain. I think it's one of the most beautiful mountains. I love being on the top of there, and I hold a pass actually to go up. Um, I've, uh, I've, I've, in my in pipe dreams, I've, I've wondered what it would require for me to actually acquire that mountain. I remember once Googling it to see if I could afford it, and the price tag came out to be approximately undisclosed, about $200 million. I thought it's a little more than the bank is willing to give me for a mortgage right now. So I can't exactly acquire the mountain. But I remember this, you know, I was thinking about it, like, do you know what my actual hope is? And it comes from this verse, it's that the meek shall inherit the earth. And though that mountain actually belongs to Tom Gaglardi's family right now, and they can ski on it and go up whenever that they want one day, my hope and my consolation is one day that mountain will actually belong to my family, the people of God, who will live on the new heavens and the new earth. And one day on the new heavens and the new earth, I will be able to ski and enjoy that mountain with my family because my father owns it, you know, forever. And I won't even need to buy it myself because it will be my inheritance. And it's not just that mountain. It's the whole earth as well. You know, this is the promises that are given to us as believers. You think that you're battling, you know, to make ends meet here on this earth. You're anxious about life. God will give us mountains, the entire earth, just because we're his children one day. So don't worry about it. If you don't have your best life now, you'll have it in the future. You know, in the kingdom of God, You'll never line up again at Costco. You'll never worry about people emptying the shelves of toilet paper. You will never worry about a place to live or getting sick or the coronavirus. You'll never worry about these things because the whole earth and its fullness that belongs to the Lord will be yours. Not because you're great, but because you belong to His family. And to all who believed in His name, He said, He gave the right to be called sons and daughters of the living God. It's your inheritance because you're his children, not because of anything you've done, but because of the pure graciousness of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, this is my point. As children of God, we don't worry because we're stupid or because we just try to push things out of our head. We don't worry because we have absolute surety in a God who fights for us, a God who will defend us, and and we know that he loves us because of what he did through Jesus Christ on the cross. As I conclude this... um, this uh, sermon here on meekness. Uh, the question remains for us is how do you get it? How, how do you get meekness? And the answer to that question is, it sounds good. I want meekness. The meek will inherit the earth. How do you get it? And the real answer to this is in one sense, you actually can't. You can't just get it. It has to be gifted to you. See, like many things in the Christian life, meekness also is a gift. You can't buy it. You can't produce it on your own. You just try to be meek. Meekness that comes from the inside really is not true biblical meekness at all. It has to come from the outside, from the outside in. It's transformational. When your heart understands the gospel and Jesus' death on the cross, only then will you really be able to understand how to be meek. See, when you're mistreated at work, meekness says, my king gave me this job and my king showed me kindness in not repaying me according to what I have done to him. So it is an honor for me to be able to suffer in the way that he suffered and to display his goodness and his mercy to those around me who would mistreat me. Today I'm mistreated, but Lord, help me today to honor you and to emulate Jesus who also did not open his mouth or repay his enemies. See, you can't get that kind of mental thinking or, uh, or, or heart, I think, desire and uh, knowledge simply through willing yourself to not hit back. 
Christianity is transformative. It's because you're a new person who understands what has been done for you that meekness will become a part of your character. You know, you think about the way the Beatitudes are structured. It's the next logical progression. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You've got to be humble before God. Know your weakness and your poverty before him. Then you need to understand, not only are you poor in spirit, but those who mourn, mourning over their sin and over the effects of sin in this world, are the ones who are right in God's eyes, have the right disposition towards him. And only after that can you understand meekness. I think the Beatitudes are very well organized, actually. See, if you never... If you don't recognize your poverty before God, you'll actually never be able to look at people in this world when you're offended and they treat you poorly and not think, I deserve better than this. See, if you get the gospel, you'll say, actually, I deserve way worse than this. I deserve the judgment of God. So what this insult is to me, really, in the grand scheme of things, is nothing compared to what I have done to God. See, only the gospel kills pride by putting you on the bottom rung. You say, I have no rights, my Lord, but everything you wish for me to do I will do out of love and honor for you. You know, if you're not a Christian here today, I would simply say that the mercy of God calls out to you as well. The mercy and the grace of God that says, would you not turn to me and give me your life? Stop trying to be all these things that you want to be. Stop being anxious. Stop hoarding the toilet paper. When everyone else runs, you can do good as well. Why? Because you know that you have a savior. You know that you have an anchor for your soul. You know you have a foundation for your feet to stand on. And the only sure foundation in this world is Jesus Christ. He alone can turn your mourning into joy. He alone can deliver you from your sins. And he alone can allow you not to hit back when you are mistreated because he did not do it to save your soul. You know, if you're a believer here, I want to just ask you guys, with the panic in the world right now and all these things that are going on, maybe your situation at work, can you trust? Can you trust that the Lord who means you well, the Lord who saved your soul, will give you the fortitude and the strength to believe in him and trust him, that all things will be made right in the end of the day, and that even if you don't get exactly what you want on this earth, this is your promise. The meek will inherit the earth. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for teaching us about the joys of meekness and the immense blessings that it brings. Father, I pray you would help us not to live in fear in this world, but that, God, we would live in hope, God, of the resurrection and the life to come. You tell us, God, that you're faithful, those who are meek, who are like our Lord, not repaying evil for evil, but repaying evil for good, will one day inherit the earth. So if it's anxiety, God, that drives us to try to stock up and make sure that our lives go very well right now, I pray, Father, you would help remind us that our reward in our lives are already secure in you. We can give it all away, God, because everything has already been given to us. So, Father, would you help us to believe this, to live like this, and to honor Jesus, so that even in the midst of panic, people will be led to our Savior and see him for how glorious and great that he is. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.